there are some contexts where they're used interchangeably. Um, mano is used, it seems to be used differently in poetry from when it's used in prose. When it's used in prose, it's, you know, the sixth sense. And then in poetry, it seems to be more er, 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 around the will, around the will, like the heart. When, when, when you talk about the heart and mind, it's kind of more the heart area, um, questions of will. Like when you do an act with a pure mano, then the results are good. <clears throat> the words don't have that, s- that fixed a meaning, so you can't really say it specifically. And jitta is never defined. It's interesting, in, in Buddhism, we're, we're training the mind for the sake of true happiness by putting it into suffering. Mind, happiness, suffering are not translated, or not defined. So, you know, whatever your concept of your awareness is, basically, that would be, that would be jitta. And that's going to develop as you practice. As I said, if you look at the poetry, like the Dhammapada and other texts of that sort, Mano tends to go in that direction of more kind of the heart, the, the will, or the intention, as opposed to just kind of the knowing faculty. Yes? Don't don't say don't say that yet. Yeah, just say. No, it's selfing is an activity you do, and you have, you've been doing selfings and lots of different selfings. And the question of what is behind all this, you don't ask. You just say, look at the activity itself. And when is it skillful? When is it not? And with the committee members, you know, which ones are you la- allowing to take over? Okay, again, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha does not answer the question, what gets reformed? He said, this, he'll tell you how it's done, so that you can see that how it's done is also a process you're doing every day, in the sense of you know, something comes up and you cling to it, and you can't cling to that anymore, and you're going to move over and cling to something else. <clears throat> and as long as there's this need to cling, there's going to be a continued, what he calls continued becoming. But the, the question of, and even if you did answer, what is it that gets reborn? You're not responsible for that. You're responsible for the how. So he's focusing your attention on what you are responsible for. But the question of whether there is a self or is not a self—that's what he put aside. So he's you know, he does not commit any way on that answer. He doesn't say there's no permanent self, but there's a temporary self. He doesn't say that. He just drops the whole issue. And you can see for yourself, you know, when you know you're holding on to something, but you can't stay there anymore. The mind just starts searching around immediately for the next place to go. 
And the same thing is going to happen at the moment of death. Because we can't stay in this body anymore. The, the original owners are taking it back. They're pushing you out. And the mind just goes. Or whatever. And so you want to train it so it doesn't go for just whatever. That's more picky about where it's going to go. Happenstance. Which means luck. So happiness in English is synonymous with luckiness. And I don't think the Buddha is teaching luckiness. So in some ways, the word true happiness, as you use it and as the teachers use it, I guess it's insufficient. It doesn't seem like it's not taking you in the direction that. Okay. Okay, this, um, the Pali term for sukha, which is being translated as happiness, can also mean pleasure, bliss, ease. Take your pick. Why does he use this English word happiness that it is dukkha? Mm-hmm. I can't explain. <laughs> but if you say, hey, we're practicing for the sake of sukha, everybody says, well, what? You know? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe some maybe someday people will pick it up. But in the meantime, we it's. I mean, the Buddha says this is the ultimate bliss, ease, pleasure, whatever. Okay, well, the things about the, the devas, etc., etc., um, you know, there are people who experience this stuff in their meditation, and you need to give them guidance so they don't go crazy. Because you start seeing spirits, and they start telling you things, and occasionally what they may tell you is true and useful, and oftentimes it's not. In some cases, it's, it's the same people will experience the same whatever in a certain location or at a certain time. So either it's just kind of a mass hypnosis, which I don't think it is, or else there's something there. Um, and you know, our materialistic worldview might not allow for that, but then why do we hold on to our materialistic worldview? So if it's you say, okay, I don't have any experiences like that in my meditation, you just kind of let it go. Um, as for rebirth, I mean, the Buddha says that is one thing you want to take as a working hypothesis. That it does happen. Then you might try an experiment and say, um, you know, like they have those courses where people will, for a year, say, suppose you have one year left to live, how would you live that, that year? And see if it kind of straightens out your life. And you might say, well, for a year I'm going to live as if I really believed in rebirth and the power of action. How would that change your life? Oh, yeah, And I know a lot of people who resist that, and then they finally get honest with themselves, and they really say, "Real, I'd have to become a better person <laughs> if I really believe these things." Well, that's what it's all about. 
get you acting more careful about your actions. Mm-hmm. But it has also the same potential as I mean, because as the Buddha explains consciousness, it doesn't have to have a body. It, it thrives off of clinging and craving. Yes. <laughs> well, not, well. <laughs> watch out. <laughs> you know about anything that I you don't know about conversations about? Could you explain yourself? What do you know about kinds of when, what kind of conversations are we talking about? Yeah. About happiness? happiness? Happiness, okay. Okay, you have to ask yourself, what would make you truly happy? Well, about watching on TV or something like that. Okay, is that really satisfying? When you watch TV once, is that enough? Well, yeah. Yes? Usually it's not satisfying. You watch it once, you want to watch it again, right? Well, I have no idea. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's easy to turn off screen. Mm-hmm. Good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Is it e- when you have sad thoughts, is it easy to turn them off? It is? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are two times you can think about it. One, you read for a bit, and then you just put the book down, and you close your eyes, and you ask yourself, what did I learn? And to what extent is that? am I going to be able to take that lesson and put it into my life? The other time to contemplate the Dharma would be right after meditation. Think about, okay, what I read today, or some other Dharma lesson that I've had in the past. What would be actually useful as I go into the day? Because when the Buddha talks about right effort, it's not just being in the present moment. Sometimes you have to anticipate situations, particularly if you know that you're going into a situation where you tend to do something unskillful. It's good to run the situation in your mind beforehand. Say, okay, what would be a better way of doing this than my habitual way? If I said this, what would be the result? If I said that, what would be the result? And that's, that's an important part of right effort. It's called preventing unskillful Mind states from arising. So that's a useful, useful contemplation. So meditation is not just about being in the present. You want to take the, the powers of concentration and mindfulness that you've developed in the present, and then think about how you're going to use them. 
So that would be a time, a good time to think about it. You might want to look at any one of Ajahn Mahabur or Ajahn Lee's books. Try them to start. Straight from the heart, things as they are with Ajahn Mahabur. Ajahn Lee. He's got a he's got a book, you know, what is um, excuse me, a path to peace and freedom for the mind. Look at that. Straight from the heart and things as they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we start. <coughs> what a pleasure to see you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, when, so, a couple of things. Uh, when you first put out the book, um, Sublime Attitude, mm-hmm. I think you basically said that everybody's in the back of the room. I wondered, um, <laughs> I'm just curious what the flag was on that. And then, if you want to expand on, on um, that, that kind of thesis of, of how everyone's doing. Um, the flag tends to be people saying, if you can ignore Tanisha or Biko, it'll just kind of go away. <laughs> so there hasn't been any much of a response. Um, and, I, and talking about how other people are doing it wrong, I said, let's, let's talk about doing it right. Which is seeing it in the context of karma. And realizing that this is something that we have to develop. If you see, if you see metta as your, you know, sort of your natural, the natural quality of your mind that somehow has been suppressed by social conditions, you've got a problem in that you've got a natural quality of the mind that can be suppressed. So even if you start opening up and allowing it to develop more, it could be suppressed again. And so what you want to work on is, okay, what do I have to do to develop this quality? Because I do have these other things coming in. You can't deny that you could just as easily have ill will as you could have goodwill. Those, those, those things come each equally natural. Um, having goodwill for everybody takes an effort. And you really have to think your way through it. You can't just repeat the Dharma phrases, you know, may all the bastards of the world be happy. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> You've got to think, okay, even they, would, the world would be better off if they could find happiness. Um, but of course, that means they would have to change their ways. And is there some way that I can help them? And that, that, that makes one, it makes it more practical and focused. And then secondly, you learn that you can trust yourself more and more that you are, when you're dealing with difficult people, you can still have goodwill for them. And you realize, okay, even though I don't like this person or I don't like what this person is doing, I can still have goodwill for that person's ultimate benefit. And that makes it a lot easier to deal with them. And they'll, if they're sensitive, they'll start picking up on the fact that you're, you don't, you're not dealing with them out of hatred. I just find that a better way of approaching the topic. Is there a 
Yes. Okay, the concept of fabrication deals with the, fact the extent to which you are shaping your experience. And as you're shaping your experience, you are also becoming a certain kind of person, depending on the skills you have in shaping things. <clears throat> like becoming a good cook. You go into the kitchen, first time around, you bake a cake, it's passable. Yeah, okay. And then you look, okay, what can I do? And then you start researching, and you start discovering Julia Child and all these other things. And, and you get, you get you know, bigger and bigger and bigger ideas about what you can do. And, and there'll be trial and error. But then as you do it, over time, you become a better and better cook. And so that when you come in and you see some really bad ingredients on the table, you see, I'm good enough, I could turn that into something good. I had a student who was a French chef. He wasn't French, but he'd learned French cuisine and was working in a restaurant. And after leaving the French restaurant, he went to work in the British club in Singapore. Now, the, British, the standards of cuisine in the British club were quite a bit lower than the, you know, the, the Restaurant de France. And so they had this fixed-price meal one day, and it included um, cream of asparagus soup. And it turned out they had a lot more people coming than they had anticipated. And so they were running out of cream of asparagus soup. And so in case then, everybody out of the kitchen, I don't want anybody seeing me make the new cream of asparagus soup. And so he went into the garbage and got all the peelings from the asparagus, and he put them in the blender, and he made a sauce bechamel and all these other really cool things. And it was actually better soup than the... <laughs> even though it was made out of garbage, you know, literally. Trial and error. And so, in doing that, he, he you know, learning those skills, he became a different person from what he had been before. And so, it's not like you just fabricate a new whoever you've been. You say, okay, I've, as I expand my range of skills here. I will become a different person through those skills. So that when garbage does come up on the thing, I can make them make soup. <laughs> And nobody needs to know. <laughs> yes. Um, I've been a practitioner for a lot of years, but only in the last couple of years when I discovered the Theravada tradition mm -hmm. uh, and focused more on religious courses and testing mm -hmm. my understanding and so forth. And as I listen to a lot of uh, different Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I just wonder if you could share 
Okay. <laughs> well, it, it, whatever ones work, basically. Yeah, but um, yeah. There's, I mean, there are two passages where the Buddha actually talks in court of quoting what an attitude of goodwill would be. Um, one is in the Garanyamaita Sutta where he says, "May all beings, um, long or short, heavy or light, big or small, um, be happy at heart." And one of the most interesting past part of that passage is that may no one ever despise anyone or mistreat anyone else, along the, something along those lines. So he's not just saying, may they be happy, but also may they do the causes for happiness, avoid the causes for, for pain. So keep that in mind, because we are talking about karma here. So that's one. And then the other one is, um, may these beings be happy, free from pain, free from free from affliction, free from whatever, and then may they look after themselves with ease. And that's actually, those are actually in the suttas. Now the Buddha doesn't say that you just sit there and repeat these things over and over again, but that's, that's kind of a guidance for the kind of attitude that you're trying to develop. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's very much the practice in Thailand. There was a, there was a monk who was a student of a John Mun, who, um, you may have heard of John Kao, Anelio, who was married, went off on a kind of a trading trip, came back home, discovered his wife had been sleeping with another guy. And his first impulse was to kill them both. And then his second impulse is, no, <laughs> I don't want to, that would be very bad karma. So he decided, okay, I'm going to leave the whole thing, I'm going to become a monk. And so John Munn saw that he had a really strong temper. And so he gave him a chant. It's called, it's called the Meta Luang, which really means the big Meta chant. And it repeats these phrases for all kinds of beings in all, all ten directions. And it takes a good half hour to get through all the beings. You know, may all beings, may all creatures, may all men, may all women, may all devas, all human beings, all animals, all hell beings, the whole list. East, north, west, above and below, and the, and the intermediate directions. And that's what he did. He just got to repeat that chant day in, day out, day in, day out, every day. Calmed him down. And it calmed him down. Okay, there's basically the lots of kinds of birth they talked about. What do you mean about? About um, how a being is uh, described into this world. In terms of what spontaneous generation or eggs? I can't say much on that topic. That's something that the commentaries came up with. But in, in every case, when there a being comes, it's 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 the awareness from a previous lifetime, based on karma, that finds a new place to land. And some places are better than others. But we don't not believe in a soul. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, just kind of put that question aside. <laughs> so what, how is it that um, rebirth happens? How, how does it happen? 
as I said, it's there's the tendency of the mind or the tendency of consciousness is to cling. You can feed on it; it will cling to craving, and we, even without having a body, it can go on that craving. And the Buddha's analogy is like a fire that goes from one house to another. Even though there's not a piece of wood that the fire burns across to get to the other house, it can get there on the wind. In the same way that you know, the, this craving will take you over to another body. Now the question of who is it that gets that's carried over? He says, you don't have to worry about that. It'll happen without you knowing what it is or what it's not. What you've got to watch out for is the mind's tendency to just go out, grab onto anything. Especially, you know, it's like when you're being pushed out of your house. You're going to go forever. It looks like there's shelter. Like I said this morning, it's not so much the goal, it's how you're going to get there. If I were going to pursue this goal, what would, would I have to do? And if it's going to involve anything that breaks the precepts or anything that's unskillful, okay, that's not a place I want to go. So that cuts out a lot of things. And then the, the range you have left, and that, that becomes you know, up to you. Where do you feel inspired? Pretty good one. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I, I, as a you know person trying to practice, you know, the, the teachings, I, I feel like okay, well, I don't want to believe that like this craving is always going to exist, and in twelve step programs, the idea is like, well, you always are going to kind of have this lingering mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. there, and you never swear off. You say, well, I'm not going to drink today, or I'm not going to drink now. So it's like, you know, how does that even? Is there a skillful way? Yeah. No, you'd, you'd say, I'm not going to drink from now on. And have, on the days when you feel tempted to drink, you don't drink. And the next morning you remind yourself, last night I felt tempted to drink, but I didn't drink. But how much fatter do I feel now that I stuck with it? Remember that. And that, keeps, that gives you more nourishment. So the next time you feel tempted, you say, remember, tomorrow morning I'm going to be really glad I didn't drink. But it, it is good, and the, you know, if you can say from now on in zero, and then you remember, well, I made this promise to myself. Some in, traditionally in Thailand, they'll, they'll do it in front of a Buddha image, or in front of an ajahn, to give it an added weight. Okay, I did not, you know, I promised my ajahn that I was not going to drink again. And you can hang on by your fingernails until it's until the until the temptation goes. And that's a lot stronger than saying, well, today I'm not going to drink, but I can't come here tomorrow. I can guarantee tomorrow. Yes. 
Okay, uh, you, there are study guides that will take particular topics. They have passages from the, from the Pali Canon arranged in a way that you can see how the different passages fit together. And you can go online to dhammatalks.org and there are a lot of these study guides. You just look at whatever topic you find to be of interest and then figure out in the course of a day how many pages do I feel comfortable reading and then one of the one of the study guides is actually really useful. It's the one it, it may sound like a little advanced. It's called Into the Stream. It's about stream entry, but it's very. It goes down to this is what's necessary for the practice. You know, find the right people, listen to the right dharma, learn to question it in the right way, and then follow the practice. That's that's quite a, that's quite good already. You need all factors of the path. One right view that tells you where to look. Right resolve is okay, okay, I don't want to get in, involved in becomings that are going to be harmful for me or other people. But now, isn't it the thing right in front of you? Yes, but uh, the, the, what's right in front of you is something you know by alertness. Mindfulness, remember, is your ability to keep something in mind. So you're remembering right view and you're remembering that you have this right resolve. So that when you watch the process as it's happening, you can remember, okay, I don't want to get involved in something that's unskillful. But also in order to have the clarity, in order to see that clearly, the mind needs to be fully settled, which is why you need the right concentration. Because as I was saying yesterday, it's your right view gives you kind of a theoretic, to begin with, it gives you a theoretical understanding of what suffering is and how it has to be approached. And then as you add all the other factors to the path, they're going to teach right view. I mean, right view gives them instructions about how to speak, how to act, how to think. But then as you carry out those instructions, you get practical experience. You go, what is this fabrication? What are these becomings? You send that information back to right view. You know, it's like the spy master sends the spies out into, the, into an enemy territory, and then the spies come back and say, "Well, you wouldn't believe what we learned." Mm -hmm. Right. Question: Whether to take on a project or not. Yeah. That, that, that starts with the question: Okay, what is this going to accomplish? Is there a real need out there? 
or something like this. I mean, and cer- certain topics, some other people have covered really well already, so I don't have to bother, worry about that. And then I actually don't have one, only one topic going at a time. I usually have about two or three projects going at a time at different stages. So if you know, I have a set period of time every day, two hours in the afternoon when I can work on, on writing projects. And sometimes I'll wake up from my afternoon nap and say, I do not feel like working on that project right today. It's just, my brain is not going. Well, I've got another project. You know, what do I feel like working on now? So I, I allow my gut feeling at the time sometimes to determine which projects actually get done first, which ones don't. Because sometimes, you know, writing takes a different mindset from editing, which takes a different mindset from designing covers for the books. Um, I tend to design the covers of my books first and then bite the book. Because <laughs> that's the most fun, you know. <laughs> If you, f- if you find that you're getting, you know, it's impossible, f- it, like I would get up from my nap and I said, you know, I'd like to work on this, but, you know, I've lost track of the project. Where am I now? Where am I going to pick up the thread? I've got too many projects. You have to be able to keep two or three threads going. And more than that, it gets, gets oppressive. Mm-hmm. In the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Two hours, two hours, stop. Okay, it's a combination of being really still and being very alert at the same time. And the analogy that the Forest of Johns give is it's like being a hunter. You know, the hunter, you're going to go out, you want a rabbit, right? Well, you have to know where the rabbits are, or tend to be. And you get there, and you have to be very still so that you can, you, one, you don't scare the rabbits away, and also you can detect when they come. But you also have to be very alert so that when they do come, oh, you know, here, here's a rabbit. And you can't determine ahead of time when the rabbit's going to come or not, but you want to, I want to be in the right place. Now, the rabbits here are insight. The concentration is getting yourself in the right place, being alert, very still. So what happens, what happens with that kind of falling into the air pocket is that the breath has gotten really still and it's very comfortable, and either you have left the breath to go for the comfort, or else the breath has just gotten so vague that you can't keep track of it. And the way to resolve that is, as the breath is getting still, you want to expand the range of your awareness. This is why we talk about you know, going through the breath energies through the legs, through the arms, through the torso, and then getting that whole body awareness. Now, if you have that, you can maintain that broadened sense of awareness, then even as the breath gets more calm and gets more comfortable, you've got a framework that's not going to let you slip off. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's why that's why you have to anticipate this is going to happen. So I've got to get that full body awareness first. And so 
Yeah, as soon as it starts getting comfortable, you know, you're getting in the danger zone. Spreading. That's, there's a, you know, there's that there's that um, way of analyzing concentration between momentary concentration, access concentration, and fixed penetration. It's these are terms that come from the commentaries, but so there's no real clear, you know, sutta way of analyzing them. But there was a forester John who gave an explanation that I really liked. He says momentary concentration is your kind of everyday concentration, like when you're listening or when you're reading, and it doesn't like pain. It comes up against something it doesn't like, and it drops. And then you have to pick it up again, and it runs up against. It can be even boredom; it's gone. You know, it doesn't have to be very painful at all. Just okay. I don't like this. I'm out. Access concentration can kind of plow through those periods of boredom or whatever, and get more steady. But then it can't take pleasure; it zones out. And that's the point where you have to do work in the pleasure. As I said, expand the range of your awareness, expand the sense of pleasure going through the body, give the mind an activity to do that's involved with the breath. And then when it finally settles down, okay, you can take pleasure, pain, everything, you're ready for it. That's the kind of concentration you're wanting. Well, try to have at least one spot in the body where you feel centered and comfortable. And it's good to choose a spot that tends to be you know, the first spot that will clench up and then spread that clenched energy through the rest of the body. Try to locate where in the body does it first happen. Watch that spot. And keep it always open, open, open. And as soon as it clenches up, open. Don't let it spread. If, if it changes, um, again, if you have several spots, Okay, try to notice which one tends to be most likely. And kind of safeguard that in anticipation. It's that, okay, this could happen, so I've got to have my protection ready. So that the goal would be to open so that you're not in a, a clenched state. Right. A free clenched flow, perhaps. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And also, um, how does one support patience? Patience? Patience. <sighs> With patience. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, don't get on yourself. Gee, I wish I were more patient. Why can't I be more patient right now? Because, you know? <laughs> okay, let's try it. Let's, okay, things will be, I can t- take this. It's, again, it's the best thing to just focus not so much on what's difficult in the situation, but where are your strengths right now? Okay, this, this particular situation, this person may be difficult, that person may be difficult, and I've got a chattering going on in my mind that's driving me crazy. Where is my strength right now? Focus on that, and not so much on the things that you're finding hard hard to bear. So, was, someone asked me about my. I was talking to someone one time about you know all the difficulties the first couple of years when I was in when I was in Thailand, 
And they said, well, what was the most difficult thing for you? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I realized I could not identify what was the most difficult thing for me. I think that that's probably what got me through. You can do it with meta practice. Um, what your main concern should be about what is my present karma right now? And then work on giving yourself a good foundation for that. So like when pain comes up, you say, okay, is the entire body in pain? No, there are parts of the body that are not in pain. Let me focus my attention there. So I can get a sense of strength from that. Because remember, you don't have just one karma account. You've got lots of karma accounts going. And some of them may be producing, you know, really bad stuff, <laughs> but others are doing okay. But, you know, the mind's tendency is to survey, okay, where's the problem right now? Where's the problem right now? And that's where all the, the bells and whistles go off. So I guess let me ignore that for the time being. Where are things okay? Let me focus my attention there, get some strength from that. Um, I personally found that the book by A.K. Warder, Introduction to Pali, the way he taught it was, for me, was very intuitive. Now, I know for some people it's not, but to me it made sense. And they have, they have you know, answer guides, and the problem is some of the answer guides online are not reliable. Um, but um, this, there's, one, there's also one by Lily De Silva, which is a little bit simpler to begin with. But her problem is that she's teaching both the Pali of the canon and the Pali of the commentaries, which are, it's kind of like you know, classical Latin and medieval Latin. They're not quite the same. Whereas A.K. Ward is taking you straight to the suttas. So you're learning the, the, the Pali that, you know, that's actually used in the canon itself. Yes. Number one, you keep it. You keep the practice. You keep the precepts yourself, and you have to not be preaching. Oh, oh to kids! Oh, you can preach all you want to your kids. <laughs> That's your duty as a as a as a parent. <laughs> but you basically, you, okay, you tell them, okay, just think about the people you're harming and think about you're harming yourself. If you lie, how many? Maybe you can get away with a lie, but people are. When they find out about the lie, then they're not going to trust you. Keep reminding them it's in their best interest to keep to the precepts. Okay, like drugs, yeah. Um, You know that, that old advertisement they had, you know, this is your brain on drugs, <laughs> this is your mind on drugs. And kids keep saying, self, well, where can I get it? You know. <laughs> I, 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 can so, I can so do this, yes. Okay. 
um, tell them, okay, I want to know when you drink, let, let me know. Okay? I will not yell at you, I will not, but I want to know when you're drinking, when you're taking drugs. I want to know what's going on, okay? The sting, and also it keeps them from developing a secret life where you know I'm not going to tell mom about this. Then you can ask them, okay, how do you feel the next day? But it is, you know, as as you can remind, okay, there are lots of dangerous things that can happen. My niece learned to stop drinking alcohol when one night she was at a bar with a friend. And she went to the restroom, and she thought that her friend was covering her drink, and the friend was actually involved, you know, talking to somebody else. And somebody slipped something into my niece's drink, and the friend suddenly noticed my niece being led out of the uh, out of the restaurant by this guy, and she was able to stop him in time. And so when she finally came to, and she realized what had happened, she said, "I'm never ever going to touch alcohol again." So warn people, you know, when you start drinking, you're hanging around drinkers. When you start taking drugs, you're doing hanging on people who take drugs, and they're not the best people you want to be be associated with. Yeah, well, as I said, you know that 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 part of the brain that can actually process, you know, I do this, what will the results be, is 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 pretty impaired at that point. But run, okay, like, you know, that there are the dangers. But if you make it a battle. They're going to win the battle. Okay, I've played my role. I've, I've, I've done. I've taught him this. I've taught him that. And then, then that's when you discover that this little kid, who was your kid, your kid, your kid, came out of your came out of your womb. He's got other ideas. That's that's what that's the hardest thing for a parent is to develop equanimity around your child. But you have to, be, at the same time, you have to be there and say, "Kid, look, I want to know when you do these things. Don't keep them from me, okay?" And there's that teaching where the Buddha says, you know, when he's teaching Rahula about his actions, you know, when you make a mistake, go talk it over to a knowledgeable person. Which means that the knowledgeable person has to be willing to say, you know, you come, the kid comes home and says, "I got drunk last night, and I, spent, you know, I crashed the car, and it's totaled, and I've got a best friend in the hospital right now." You don't lose it. Say okay, no, never do that again. <laughs> yes. One is when you're feeling hungry, have a lot of water with you, so at least there's something in your stomach. Um, and this is fasting, what, fasting in the evening? Yeah, from noon until 7. It's next morning, okay. Um, 
And they do have things that are, that, that are allowable in the evening, right? Or not, is there nothing at all? Tea? Okay. Um, there are a few other things that are allowable you can sneak in. <laughs> but I mean, if you find that you're just, you, all you can do is obsess about you know, the lack of whatever. I mean, some people are hypoglycemic when they need a little something extra. Um, and so find something that's allowable. But as, again, remind yourself, okay, the hunger is here right now. It's in an hour, it's going to be gone. Because you know, the juices get turned on during your normal, f- normal meal time. And then they turn off. And you're just going to sort of back at normal. So drink some water at that time, take a little whatever. And remind yourself, this is not going to last. I can tell you all kinds of unflattering things about you, Greg, that I've thought sometimes. Okay, this is when you have to remember that even the Buddha was treated with disrespect. And you know, all these wonderful people in the past have been treated with disrespect. And if your, your own self-respect has to depend on their respect of you, you've got weak self-respect. Mm-hmm. Just make sure you tell yourself, okay, at least I've got the five precepts. Or at least I've got one of the five precepts got some good to me. And the, and the point where they're looking at you, we're looking askance at me or seeing me in a bad light. As far as I can tell, I'm not guilty of that, or what they're seeing in me. And so that shouldn't erase the goodness that you got. It 
if you're constantly looking to have your self-worth validated in the eyes of other people, that's a very uncertain place to be validated. Because they've got their moods. And again, the, the disrespect your friend might have shown to you yesterday may not necessarily mean that he or she has that disrespect all the time. Maybe his intestinal flora is going through something bad right now. Right? <laughs> like I was I was my teacher's attendant for the last six years of his life and I know it was not the best possible attendant but it was the only one he had and I hated that being in that position where I was doing something that I was not naturally good at but I figured okay I'm learning and then I found out later that there was this one period where I had to go back and visit my father and another time a time one came in to take my place and all he heard was, if Tan Jeff were here, this would have been done yesterday, you know. Because <laughs> I was never getting any positive feedback from him during this time. It was always, this is wrong, this is wrong. And again, as you say, you can take it more easily from a teacher because you figure he's got his best, your best interests in heart. But then you, you get more used to the fact, okay, I've got some weaknesses and other people are seeing my weaknesses. Okay, no, they're there, what am I going to say? It's like learning a foreign language. You have to be willing to be a fool. And then you learn. Okay, this is when you want to use your breath energy as kind of to create a cocoon. Say, so, okay, I'm going to have this sense of stillness and sense of openness inside, but I've also got some protection here that I'm inhabiting my body. Try to ask, where is my body right now? Be very clear about that, because often this is what happens when there's a sense of everything open up, embracing the whole world. Your sense of your body begins to dissolve, and you've got to reestablish that. Think of the breath energy moving around the areas of your body, and it creates a kind of like a magnetic field around you and think, okay, other people's energies cannot penetrate. Now I'm safe. Like a white yeah, a clear cocoon. You're probably too young for Colgate with Gardol. <laughs> <laughs> you never heard of Colgate with Gardol? <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. I <laughs> Okay, it's back in the 1950s. Colgate was proud of this chemical they called Gardol, which was and and 
basically what it was in the commercial. They would have you smiling, and, and some your germs were going to be coming into your mouth, and all of a sudden this clear plastic shield appeared in front of your mouth, <laughs> and bounce, the germs bounced off. <laughs> No, 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 no. You want a shield, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is, is this especially useful when you're going into a crowd of people who are kind of antagonistic. You have I'm have my space, and they cannot penetrate my space. And this gets to the question you don't want to hear answered. This is also how you do with unfriendly spirits, or spirits, just strange spirits. When you sense that there's somebody else in the room or something else around there. Fill your body with your own breath awareness. Okay, this is my space. They can't come in, and then extend goodwill. Right, 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 right. Because yeah. you have you have to have your boundaries. Okay, here are my boundaries, but at the same time, I'm not threatening anybody. Then you're safer. Because you don't want to be penetrated. Because not every energy out there is useful, and not energy, every energy is good. Well, at least you're not you're not presenting a danger to them. You have to create that sense of this is my this is my space. I'll tell you two stories. You probably don't want to hear these stories. But <laughs> <laughs> One is I mean, this is where I learned this technique to begin with. My teacher had a student who was quite psychic, and um, and my teacher was quite psychic as well. There was one day we had this visitor at the monastery, and a friend of hers had told my teacher before she brought this visitor to come that this friend has always had a problem. When she meditates, as soon as she starts to settle down with the breath, she starts shaking quite violently. And maybe maybe my teacher could do something for her. <coughs> so the woman came, sits down, meditates, starts shaking, and my teacher says to Pensi, who was the, the psychic student, said, get a load of what's happening with her. And so Pensi gets in her meditation, and she sees these two beings behind the woman shaking her like this. And so her first reaction is to go up and try to stop them. And they turned on her. And so she got so upset and startled, I mean, she went out and threw up. And then came back to see my teacher, and, and, and he said, you fool, you have to protect yourself first. You know, in her case, it was not only the breath, but she also had a sense of light, so she filled her own body with light. He said, okay, then spread goodwill to them, then ask them, why are you doing this? And the answer she got was that they were parents of this woman from her previous lifetime, and she had killed her parents, and they were just kind of following her. And then they were afraid if she meditates, she's going to get away, so they were going to stop her. Or, or, or they want to get their revenge. You know, this is what revenge can do to people. And so she said, well, is there anything she could do that would make you leave her alone? And I said, yes, um, build a Buddha image and dedicate it to us. Now the problem was we were building a Buddha image at the monastery at the time. So when Pensi went to tell this to my teacher, he said, "I'm afraid we can't say anything to her then, because otherwise it would look like this is a you know, this is, we're playing a trick trying to get the money in for the for the Buddha image. So we have just have to let that be for the time being." 
And sure enough, a couple of years later, the woman had some friends who had invited her to make a Buddha image or help build a Buddha image, and the shaking stopped. That's one, one story. Second story is I have a, someone I know up in Canada who as a teenager started practicing meditation. And it turns out he was getting this kind of psychic stuff happening in his meditation. He was sensing all these spirits all around. Now the problem with the Catholic worldview is that there are two kinds of spirits, and only two. You've got angels and demons, and these are obviously not angels. So it freaked him out. He thought he was afraid of being you know, surrounded by demons. So he stopped meditating. And then years later, he came back to the meditation. And we happened to be climbing in the Rockies one time. And so he mentioned this to me, and so I told him the lesson I had learned from that particular encounter. And that night, he was in his tent and sleeping, and he woke up, and he had this feeling that there was something sucking energy out through his feet. And so he set up in meditation, and he had the sense of an enormous being that was bigger than the mountains. So he remembered what I told him, so he filled his body with the breath energy and then spread goodwill to the being. And he said what came back was the most overwhelming good, goodwill he'd ever felt in his life. And so he just sat there bathing in goodwill for about 15 minutes, and everything died down. And he was so wired, he could not get to sleep. And so there was a couple meditating in a tent nearby, and so he went, was going to go over and tell them. And as he approaches the tent, the wife wakes up first, and she's convinced there's a bear. <laughs> and so then he, no, he says, no, it's not a bear, <laughs> it's me. And he was so wired for the next day, he couldn't talk to people. He had to be off by himself for the whole day. But that was a lesson. Those are two illustrations, okay, why you just don't open up to these energies, that you have to protect yourself first. Well, the, the world view is very different. There, there, there are lots of gradations. So it's not either totally good or totally bad. I mean, there are such things as Davids who are ignorant. Um, and there are hungry ghosts who were maybe your relatives from a previous lifetime. So when they're coming to see you, it's not because they mean, mean ill to you, it's they want some help from you. And so it's good to have a better map of the possibilities out there. And that, and, but it, no matter what that is, I mean, you know, John Munn was saying, you probably read about it in his biography, there are a lot of devas and nagas and others coming to see him. And they would teach him Dharma lessons, and he realized if he believed everything they told him, he was going to go crazy. And so you have to have one, a filter, say, okay, does what they say sound in line with the Dharma? If it does sound in line with the Dharma, I still have to test it before I can, you know, be convinced that this is really good. And as for you know, seeing dead relatives, or you sp spread goodwill to them. And a deva comes. I mean, they're great. They're great stories in the canon about ignorant devas. <laughs> they, they they got a good rebirth because they were generous and they were virtuous, but they don't really know much anything else. And so a couple of cases where this one deva propositions a monk. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's a non-returner, so he's not interested. And so he takes her to see the Buddha, and the Buddha teaches first some very high-level dharma, and the deva does not understand. Well, she comes away from the whole experience was, oh, you should be virtuous and be generous. That was all she could understand. But then there's another story where a deva comes to, she sees a monk out in the forest, and he's going to bathe in a pool, 
and there's a lotus in the pool. So he sniffs over to smell the lotus. And she appears in front of him and says, you just stole the scent of that lotus. He says, oh, come on, it's, it's, it's a minor thing. She says, no, look, if you're really serious about the practice, you can't let these minor things just be minor. He says, even a small fault, you should say, is as big as a cloud. Um, he says, oh, my God, you're right. Um, well, thank you very much for telling me this, and if you ever see me do anything like that again, please let me know. And she says, I'm not your servant. <laughs> so I kind of like the Buddhist attitude towards these things. It's, on the one hand, acknowledging that it happens, but not being over- overwhelmed and you know, believing everything that's out there. Okay, um, the Buddha said guilt doesn't solve the problem. Recognizing the harm and then resolving not to repeat it and then having a lot of goodwill for yourself and for the other people around you. So recognize the harm, resolve not to repeat, goodwill all around. And learn to, as I was saying earlier, when you do resist that temptation, remind yourself, boy, that felt really good. So the next time you feel tempted to fall into that habit again, you say, remember, tomorrow I'm going to feel really good that I didn't do that. And that gives you something to feed on as you're resisting the tempt. The other thing is, well, if someone else is in this situation, what would be a skillful way of responding? Have you seen any good examples? And if you can't think of any good examples, go talk to a Dharma teacher. Because a lot of times we've been patterning our behavior on all the unskillful behavior we've seen around us. And we haven't seen a better way of dealing with a problem. So if you realize, okay, there are alternatives and I am capable of this alternative, then it gets a lot easier to get out of a bad habit. Well, one is just knowing what it is. Okay, um, you're going to perceive it as you practice. And to practice requires that you make certain assumptions. And you say, okay, I want to, I'll take this as an assumption for the time being. And then act on it. And then see, am I getting, is my life getting better? Am I becoming a better person? Two things you might want to read on Karma. One, there's a, the, the essays at the beginning of Wings to Awakening, which talk about you know, why com- karma is complex. And there's an article that just appeared in the tri- latest tricycle 
and it's unfortunately titled The Buddha's Baggage. And it's about karma. And in which I take I take on <coughs> some frequently asked questions about karma. <coughs> Losing my voice. Um, kind of straighten out a lot of misunderstandings around it. And then try that exercise that I said earlier. Live the next year as if you really believed in it and see what happens. Meaninglessness is not a good track. Well, meaningless in the sense that if I just try to just be trying to be a good person, it's going to come, just come around and around and around and around and around. It doesn't come get out. I've got to do something better than just be a good person. So the path becomes meaningful. Your actions become meaningful as a way out. And they have that, you know, they have the five reflections. I'm subject to aging, illness, death, separation. Now, if they stop there, that'd be pretty depressing. But then there's a the fifth reflection. I'm the owner of my actions. That's the way out. That's actually meaningful. I am the owner of my actions. Heir to my actions. Whatever I do for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. Which means that your actions really do make a difference. So you better be on top of that, because they do mean something. Okay, well, I mean, part of it is learning to teach your clients to look at their actions. Okay, well, you know, what, what are you doing right now that's creating suffering in your life? And your analysis about you know, what, would, what would the end of suffering be for this person? You can take a little bit more from, from the Buddhist page. It's not necessarily that you want to have a connection with other beings, 
but you actually want to see, okay, what am I doing? How am I taking responsibility for my actions? Um, and what can I learn from my mistakes? What's the best way to learn from my mistakes? Realizing that okay, you, ultimately the client, will have to take care of him his or her own act, mm -hmm. so to speak. You're there to support, you're there to help. Um, I, have a, I have a couple of students down in, in California who are trying to get out of that romantic way. And they, and they found a lot of it has to do with giving people a sense of moral compass. Yeah. And her, her, her complaint about the psychiatric tradition um, or profession is that too many people want to please their clients. And just make the clients feel good, because when the clients feel good, they keep coming back. You know? <laughs> Whereas you want to teach, okay, I want my I want my client to be more of a responsible person, and say, look, you've got to take responsibility for your actions. You've, okay, you've done this. What can you do now to make sure you don't repeat that action? And some people will be tied up by guilt, and so you try to get them through. You know how a better way of responding to past mistakes might be, and also thinking in the long term and give them a series of skills. This is how you would approach the situation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you can, your psychotherapy doesn't have to be totally romantic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But taking that question of one, the moral compass, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what is a really moral way to act? And, and not so much a sense that somebody else there said, this is the way it has to be, but someone's pointed out, if you act in this way, it's going to cause trouble down the line. Let's not act in ways that cause trouble. This particular psychotherapist I'm thinking about is, um, she works a lot with people in the movie industry. And she's got this one client who had been through lots of different mindfulness therapists and basically threw them away, threw them away, threw them away. And so my student comes in and says, okay, what you had was mindfulness 1.0. Now we're going to do mindfulness 2.0, <laughs> which is, okay, now that you've learned to be in touch with your feelings and everything else, now you've got to learn what's the most skillful thing to do with them. Where do we go next? Because just getting in touch is not the answer. You've got to realize, okay, now that I realize like this is what I feel, these are the consequences of what I feel, what can I do to change the consequences in a better way? That seems to be a good step. Okay, this means that you have to see something as more permanent than the mental chatter. So for the time being, your desire to be with the breath should say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this as permanent as I can make it. Right, and then you apply the perception of impermanence or inconstancy to the mental chatter. Say, okay, the, my attention to the breath is going to pay off more long term than listening to the chatter is going to pay off. So you don't want to be just kind of floating around in a sea of impermanent feelings and impermanent thoughts and that kind of stuff. You say, well, this I want to make as constant as I can. I prefer the translation of 
inconstant to impermanent. Because you're not going to the breath is never going to be permanent. But my my focus on this, I'm just going to make this constant. You can watch constancy as you develop it in the present moment, and you're going to work on it. Whereas these other thoughts, you know, they, they're going to take me places I know that I'm not going to be happy in the long term. So I go there. Yeah, this is going to pass. Physical, the verbal, and the metal. Or? Um, well, I think it was something to the effect of like the the buildup of what we build up mm-hmm. in our head, mm-hmm. um, and then like what we'll do when we'll get it, mm-hmm. and then whatever we'll talk about afterwards. Yeah. The mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, it's the buildup. It just the, just the idea of I can design this, and I can design that. How about if I design it this way? I mean, it gets really fascinating. This is what the fantasies are all about. And then you have the actual partaking of the pleasure. Which, and there is some pleasure there, but it doesn't last all that long. And it often requires that you turn a blind eye to a lot of things. And then afterwards, then you continue to turn the blind eye to those things. You keep telling yourself, boy, wasn't that great? Boy, that really was great. Yeah, it was great. Next time, I'm going to do it this way. But it's always the build-up that's really what you're You're clinging to the... The, the build up, yeah. And then the other question is about, you know, the righteous anger, mm-hmm. like a, just a negative feeling. And then you said that there's like three questions to ask when, you know, I, if I were. Four, four. Or four. Yeah. How does this, what's the origination? Mm-hmm. When it comes up, what came up with it? Two, when it passes away, what passes away at the same time? Three, what, what's the allure, i.e., what do I really like about this? And then four, what are the drawbacks? And that follows on that is the question is, once you compare the allure with the drawbacks, is it worth it? So those are the questions you've got to ask. I've heard of it, and I've read a passage. Yeah. Well, what, what he's trying to do is get the idea that the Buddha would never state truths that are universally true. It was kind of four nice ideas. I think the Buddha was more of a, 
more of a sage than just, hey, these are four nice ideas you might want to try on. Um, the philological argument is, if you actually read Norman's article, you say, this guy is so dumb that only an Oxford or Cambridge don could get away with saying something like this in an article and not be laughed out of the room. Um, what he's saying is that the grammatical form of the phrases for the Four Noble Truths is irregular. And then he goes on to say, as we all know, languages go from being regular to a degenerate stage when, stage when they're irregular. Now that is dumb, capital D, you know. Because I mean, how many languages start out regular? They start, they start out all over the place, and then they get regularized only you know, when there's a large project where you have to have a lot of people talking to one another. And they have to have very clear, it's either building an empire or building a polycanon. <laughs> and so in the course of putting together the canon, the poly language got regularized. Now in some cases, it seems obvious, you look in there and there are passages where the Buddha is talking in what was obviously his dialect at the time, and they, and they preserve the original form, which is irregular. And so certain phrases that would be so associated with the way the Buddha taught, they wouldn't want to regularize. Right? Out of respect. Because I remember, you know, I remember this is how the Buddha said it. I don't want to hear it, you know, this, these new regularized rules. And so the whole philological argument is, is, is dumb. But what he's trying to say is that, again, that there's no, no universal truth to what the Buddha is saying, and the Buddha was not stupid enough to believe there were truths. Now that's a postmodern kind of approach. You know, there are no universal truths. But here the Buddha's got some advice. He said, look, this is going to work for everybody. And he says several places, these things are categorically true. So what, what Bachelor's doing, and then he's got his portrait of the Buddha, this, this poor old guy who's, you know, was mistreated at the end of his life, and his life at the end of his life he was a failure. And it's constantly meant to just tear the Buddha down. And again, with the evidence for that comes out, you know, much later things in the commentary, which we're trying to explain. Well, why was it that certain parts of India never became Buddhist and other parts did? Um, so, I mean, I don't have much use for it. I would like, I would like to get after Bachelor, but I don't. <laughs> but anyhow, sorry. <laughs> Anything else? The natives getting restless. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for your attention. <laughs>